welcome to episode 8 of Etc. Etc. with Young Southpaw. That's moi. Me if you ain't got your French tongue on. Today's guest is Mr. John Andrew Frederick. Really a modern day renaissance man. I'm not sure why people don't always qualify the term renaissance man with modern day. I mean, otherwise, they'd be like at least 400 years old, you know? Like renaissance supermen, more like. And Mr. Frederick is not centuries old, although his output may seem to belie that fact. He's just put out the 19th album by his band, The Black Watch, and very good it is too. He's also written four works of comic fiction and an excellent book on Wes Anderson's early films. Now, of course, I had some interesting questions for him about all this, and and he had lots to say, so so let's get to it, shall we? All right, so we're here today with John Andrew Frederick. How are you doing today, John? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing all right, doing all right. I'm, I'm really digging the new Black Watch album. I want to talk to you about that today. Um, but first, I had some history questions. Um, the band name, The Black Watch, like you formed in the late 80s, which was like right after the heyday of swatches, you know, multicolored timepieces. Like, were you planning like a new punk rock, like getting back to basics when it came to orology? I don't think that was uh, uppermost in our collective minds. I'm sorry to report. No, it only had to do with the Scottish regiment of uh, bagpipers who also were warriors. So I wanted something military, you know, and musical at the same time. But uh, and swatches, I had I had swatch envy. I never got one of those. I dare say that as a poor student, you know, or uh, grad student musician they were probably beyond my price range so you know i, I just reserve i reserve reserved you know just a, a a a modicum of admiration for anybody who had uh, one of those dandy things on their wrist nice nice so it was all scottish regiment tunes? yes yeah yeah it would have been that so little little did i know how absurd it would be and frustrating for various, uh, you know, punters to distinguish us from the um, the that that said regiment. We were we've hoped we've hoped several times for a lawsuit when we named uh, the record from 2011 Led Zeppelin Five. We hoped for a lawsuit for the for a cheap publicity stunt from the Zeppelin Trust. But I dare say we're too um, maybe perhaps too too to pick Ayun to for them to bother with and the same thing goes you know for the regiment you know and be, be beneath them to try to shove shove us off the mantle of that name so there you are i was gonna ask you about that because led zeppelin five is one of the all-time great record titles like the um two of my bandmates at the time scott taylor and steve share um they they both claim that they came up with it but we were having a, a beer at my flat here in angelino heights and um, kicking around a bunch of silly names, but I know for sure that I came up with that because I can distinctly remember them falling about the place, laughing at, at what a ridiculous title that was. And indeed, that has been our our biggest selling title because I think a lot of people have been too stoned to notice that there was no plant or page uh, on that particular record, but they got it thinking like, oh my God, you know, um, the, the Zeppelin man <laughs> went, went on to make a Zeppelin 5, so... If we bamboozled anybody, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, but maybe we turned you on to something beyond dinosaur rock. And maybe it was good for you kids who, 
who who bought it, you know, thinking that it was a uh, a record a record by those Titans, you know. Excellent. There you are. Yeah, Titans from somewhere. Where was where was where was Zeppelin from? I know Plant lives in Wales and plays tennis and is astonishingly articulate. He's really. Have you ever heard an an, an interview with Robert Plant? Yeah. He's really yeah. quite an eloquent, well-read guy. Because I remember somebody, maybe it was someone in Rolling Stone, who said, "Never has been a band that's been so powerful with such toking like." you know, ludicrous lyrics or whatever, you know, the lyrics of a, a silly, silly person, you know, like, like this guy, J.R.R. Tolkien. He's know, got the book whatever. right there. Yeah, I know. That's too funny. Um, but yeah, he's really, really a very bright guy, but I can't remember where they came from. Weren't they just London? Like, wasn't Jimmy Page yeah, I mean, it could playing have been, on yeah. studios? Like, uh, Jimmy Page played on uh, that Joe, Joe Meek song. Uh, what's the famous one? Telstar. Or is that yeah. Richie Blackmore? I don't know. Oh. I don't know. I'm only good, you know, with rock history with my own group, and even then, I'm, there's patchy, patchy bits too. I think that might have been Richie Blackmore, but I know Jimmy Page was a studio musician uh, before. They yeah, of off. course. Sure, but, sure. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about your band instead of Led Zeppelin. <laughs> it's over here for today. Um, Why not? You've said that you're not quite a shoegaze band, but you're a shoegaze band, which I think is a fairly accurate description. Like, you're also a big tennis player, and you can't be gazing at your shoes during a tennis match. I mean, you can no, hardly you... really be holding a guitar. So, like, how do you reconcile these things? Well, I gaze at my tennis shoes after somebody has just put a ball um, straight past me or aced me. Um, that's that's for sure. It's... um. It's the most glorious sport and the most frustrating um, as well. But I don't, you know, I mean, we, we, we have so many influences and shoegaze fans have a tendency to be akin, it seems to me, to power pop, that dreadful term, um, power pop fans um, that, you know, endlessly determining whether something is shoegazy or not. I mean... So we try not to be any, you know, anything other than um, just destitute. <laughs> really, that's what we try to do, try to do, and greatly succeed at the most. Um, but you know, we love so many of those bands. But for us to slavishly try to, you know, buy a meatball uh, um, effects or cathedral effects pedal or some um, backwards reverb, all like Kevin Shields, and try to, you know ape that that sound wouldn't would just be anathema to us i mean we try to mask our influences as much as we possibly can um and then you know reviewers often end up playing spot the influence and stuff um or or they start off reviews saying this is the best band you've never heard for the past 30 years so you know this one or the other where they start start to you know reference uh things like the beatles or the go-betweens or my bloody valentine or any you know flying nun bands or what have you so i mean i don't i don't know what to make of that i don't know what to make of anything really so well going along with this melange of styles and this huge broad spectrum of music if you had a time machine and could go back to any musical event in history where would you like to go um i'd go back to 
yesterday when I watched the Rolling Stones butcher you can't always get what you want in one of these quarantine <laughs> monstrosities that everybody's breaking out an acoustic guitar and serenading us with their indulgences. So I'd go back to yesterday and when I watched the Stones, I don't know, I must be so terribly bored. Uh, why did I do that? Um you know, um, it's it would just be like taking an extra couple handfuls of mushrooms. <laughs> you ask yourself, why? Why did I do such a thing? I don't know. When I, I don't know. I'm not a. I don't like live music very much. I think music was meant to be played on a stereo when you're in high school on headphones and lonely as could be without a friend or a prom date in the world. That's when music is the most useful thing. I don't, I, I I've been to so many shows over in the, you know, in my tenure in this whole rock, the rock gig job thing. And um, I just don't want to go to any more. I'm sorry. I don't want to see any more bands. I don't want to go back in time and and use my going back in time machine there to see a band. That's, you know, I'd rather go see a movie as I go back to 1874. <laughs> Thank you very much. So you're not going to be doing any of these quarantine gigs, I take it? No, no. Somebody from a former label, the label that put out Led Zeppelin, um, five asked, you know, I think they have a few left that haven't, you know, reached those fans that might have been bilked, um, you know, misinformed that they were asking if we were going to do this sort of thing. And it just anytime something smacks of, you know, everybody's doing it en masse, whether it's wearing plaid and calling yourself a slacker or um, or whether it's getting a new key, a keyboard player, you know, um, with one earring. Um, it's not, it's just not our, it's not our thing. No, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to join the masses of, you know, somebody moaning, moaning over a, you know, a Martin. Um, yeah, no thanks. And the band, you know, we've been very, you know, quite religious about, you know, social distancing, um, ourselves. I mean, we're, we've really become a studio band more than anything anyway, who does the occasional gig. So. Um, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, let's talk about the new record then. I'm, I'm really digging it. It's really like driving with great hooks. Um, now, in pre-production, did you like wind up a bunch of watches to like, get that driving element going on like the metaphysical plane, you know? There you are on the watches again. You <laughs> don't seem to let this go. Um, you know, no, sir, I did not wind up any watches. Um, and I won't be wound up by you neither. <laughs> so there you go. No. Yes, it, you know it's got it's got some driving it's sort of driving elements. Now I drove around. That's what I did. I got in my jeep, and um, you know I wrote I wrote while I was driving. They can't give you a ticket for that. Now the album title, "Brilliant Failures." I mean, it seems kind of dangerous to call an album that. I mean, I think the songs succeed. So are you like an unreliable narrator? I sure am. I'm very much an unreliable narrator. And even me saying that, you know, I would question the reliability of such a statement. You know, I don't think I think everything I do artistically, whether it's the novels or the songs, um, it's you're you're not you're not meant to take it at um, at at watch face value. Nice. <laughs> No, I mean, I, I like playful art. Nabokov is my favorite writer, and he's always having a laugh at the reader's expense. And you can, you know, it seems like the prudent 
and um, you know, uh, um, perspicacious thing to do is to laugh along with him. And I think people understand that, despite the fact that for the most part our our music is very serious and sometimes melancholy there's it's leavened by lots of you know lots of humor and that's always reflected in almost always reflected in the in the titles of the record i mean nobody who really um didn't just you know take himself not so very seriously is going to call a record the gospel according to john like the one that came out a couple years ago or led zeppelin five um, or amphetamines, which was an early one that was filled with really slow songs. So you know, that's a good one. That Brad Laner played on one of those. Yeah, songs. Brad Laner played on that one. Yes, absolutely. He, um, the producer Chris Apthorpe, had Brad come in. I mean, we were of course, you know, we scraped acquaintance um, from having had the same producer and stuff, and me admiring Medicine. You know, after greatly resenting them, they were one of those bands like Downy Mildew that I hated. When, when they first came out and I came to love them. But um, but it was a closed session because Brad was very, you know, precious and stuff. And, uh, you know, we couldn't come in. We weren't allowed to criticize anything. It was just he was going to do his bit and, you know, in sort of in secret or whatever. It was all very hush-hush. But there, that was a time in the 90s where a lot of people, you know, fancied themselves quite a bit more rock starish than perhaps you know, any of us were because we were younger and took it and took it and ourselves a little bit more seriously. Um, or at least, you know, it seems as though medicine did, but yeah, we were happy to have that. And, you know, the, Chris, the producer kept talking about the marquee value of having Brad, but he had some traction, you know, um, in signing to creation and being in the, in the crow and all that kind of stuff. And, um, it didn't do anything to help the record or, or whatever, but yeah, he played on a song that called see you around. I like that one a lot. No, thanks. But uh, album titles, where did Magic Johnson come from? Oh, it came from the fact that I'm, uh, I was uh, died in the purple wool um, Lakers fan. I gave them at least 25 or 30 years of my life as a child. I would be glued to the transistor radio, um, listening to Chick Hearn um, announce Ra- Laker games. I, I, I was a, I have been a great a, a Laker fan, not a basketball fan. And I ran into Magic and his wife and um, a couple of people who seemed to be Cookie, his wife's parents, his in-laws, um, at a restaurant after a tennis tournament at UCLA one time. And I I went straight up to him, my, myself and my friends. We were leaving, and I went straight up to Magic, and I behaved to Magic as I, I do to all celebs, having lived in Los Angeles all this time now. Um, as though we were old friends, I, you know, I did the same thing to Michael Stipe one time in Santa Barbara, um, just to throw them off, uh, uh, off and, ha- and and test them, see how, if they have a sense of humor. But I walked right up to Magic and I said, "Madge, have you been? What's going on? Come and meet my friends, please." And he started laughing. And then I then uh, and his wife wasn't having any of it. I probably was the seventy second, you know, person to come up to him, and he's such an affable, chummy guy. Um, he was just, he was cackling away. And I said, well, no, listen, in all seriousness, when it was announced that you were sick, um, I had my students, I was teaching at Loyola Marymount at the time. I said, as a writing exercise, I had my students write you a get, get well letter. Did you ever, and send to the courtesy of the forum, the fabulous forum. And I said, did you ever get those letters from my students? And he goes, man, I'm still answering them. 
and you know, so you know, and this was you know, twenty five years later or what have you, twenty years later. So you know, he's just such a great guy, and I just wanted to pay. Uh, I wanted an excuse to put on my Lakers jersey and be you know, be on the cover in a very small way in front of a Twombly esque kind of building um, that's condemned there on Sunset. Um, so it just seemed. It just seemed like it was time for me to pay homage to, to Magic Johnson and to the Lakers. And he, you know, as the song, the, 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 the song that ends that record, excuse me, suggests that he is, for me, the greatest point guard ever. And he represents just, you know, his spirit and what he's done for the city of Los Angeles um, and for the sport and the, the sports in general and what a figure he is. He deserved this sort of tribute. And then I guess you could segue to asking me if, I had hoped, a la the Led Zeppelin Five thing, to get his attention again, to have some of our songs played at halftime at Laker games. How unscrupulous do I sound? <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> so conniving and contrived. It's not funny, but yeah. So, um, but yeah, I just that that was that was it. That was the motif. I just wanted to pay tribute to one of my somebody I idolized, you know, as a not kid. Excellent. Now, yeah. speaking of L.A., and you, as you mentioned, you're a professor and a writer as well as a musician and king of good intentions. I enjoyed that book very much. But Thank you very much. The title always reminds me of that song, King of Wishful Thinking, you know, from the uh, Pretty Woman soundtrack, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and that's a film set in L.A. in the early 90s, just like your novel. So can you clarify for the listeners, like the differences between the two. Well, you know, that film is right up there with Kurosawa, with, uh, with Bergman, with Hitchcock, Fellini and Kubrick. So, and Julia Roberts is right up there with magic Johnson. So, you know, no, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know any such song. I'm sorry. I don't know. Oh. King, of, uh, King of something wishes at, at all, but I'll have to investigate that. It's not a high priority. Okay. All right. <laughs> but let's get back to, I mean, Pretty Woman uh, kind of goes into my next question. Let's get back to the new record. The first single, Crying All the Time, is that about you being like a huge Roy Orbison fan? No, I don't like Roy Orbison very much. I'm in the minority on that one. Wow. I'm sorry. I don't, I, I don't, I don't fancy his voice. People reference him as being amongst the, you know, most pure and beautiful voices, and I just, I just, I'm not part of the the Roy, um, the Roy faithful. At I thought it's because no. you wanted to be playing his tune, crying, all the time. As the time. no, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. That's a great creative interpretation. But it's uh, not maybe going a little far afield from from that. No, I had, no, I, I had somebody in mind who was said by another friend um, that that she had cried so much, a very beautiful woman, that she had, had made a terrible marriage, um, then that she had wept so much over it that she had lost her looks. So it was meant, as most of my songs are, it was meant, if I could get serious for a moment here, there's, it's meant as a consolation for someone whom I won't um, name because I used to be married to her. Um, <laughs> and I've only had one wife, so you guys can work. You guys can work that out on Wikipedia. Um, yeah, that was that was meant to console my ex-wife, who um, the 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 fellow that she married after me, and she had such a terrible time that she she was reported to have cried so much that she wasn't she wasn't 
such a dish anymore. So there's that. But there's not actual science behind that. You can't actually do that. Um, no, I don't think so. I think that's just one of those one of those potential, you know, soap operatic urban myths that you could that you could possibly that could possibly happen to you. My other my favorite songs on the record, uh tell me a bit about these Twisted Thinking. I love that hook. That's that's a great oh, tune. Thank you. Yes. Um that's what can I say about that? That I think that's that that came as a result of obsessively listening to my Bloody Valentine's Isn't Anything or the Strawberry and Wine EPs. Um, I just thought I would really, I always try to write at least one very skip along, jolly, uh, but at the same time dour as far as lyrics go um, song. So I thought I would bump up the BPM um, for that. And, you know, it's yet another song really I've written to console myself more than anybody else for the sort of twisted thinking that I had that if I did this, that, and the other, somebody that um, was in my life and then out of my life, like a emotional turnstile that goes round and round, that if I, if I you know, the, the ill logic you do when you're, um, you know, you're a smitten kitten who's also, you know, been squashed by the, by the, you know, tire of love somehow but you know that's a, that's one of my favorites on the, if i have played favorites I, I really like that song and how it turned out and it was a blast um to record and it's just and we resisted the temptation to put too many guitars on i mean if there's one thing you could you know um well there's more than one thing you could criticize about my band but you know that we just at least i'm, all, I'm always trying to simplify the amount of um, guitars that we overdub, but you know, it's just that either either myself or Andy Creighton, the other guitar player, um, you know, just off, often will think of you know overthinking, you know, of things. We'll add some more things, but I like how that one turned out greatly. I like that one because it's just I think it's only two guitars anyway. Wow. Yeah. And my other favorite is Julie. Oh yeah, um, that's um, that's been that's gotten a lot of hits on SoundCloud. People. Um, uh, uh, have a tendency to, to write to me and want to know who Julie is, and um, then when they see a picture of of her, they want to know um, uh, if they can have her number. Um, she's, she's a very fetching girl, very beautiful, and um, she she had told me that her heart's desire was um, to be to. She'd often um, played played with bands where she grew up in Irvine. Um, California, and that she had been this had a lifelong dream dream to sing on a record, and her other dream was to she reported was to ride a horse. She'd never, you know, even though like, she grew up rather well to do, I think that her only other dream was to to ride a horse. And since I have a phobia of horses, I've been kicked in the head twice and thrown off twice, uh, as well in the family farm we go to in the summers in uh, in, in Iowa. I, I said I could do one out of two, so I brought her to the studio. We rehearsed it together, and um, she was very nervously. She was terribly nervous, um, but she did a, a bang-up job. And in fact, she's on the new thing that we just finished, a record called From Things Some That, um, which is a nonsense phrase uh, of how I twisted around the phrase something from that. Um, Julie makes another appearance on that one, but I'm glad you like that. I'll pass it on to her. So she sang on a song about herself? Yes. Yeah, I wrote the song about about her, and then I asked her to sing her, uh, to sing it um, uh, to to fulfill her dream, um, one of them. And um, so the meta levels there, I guess, are you know um, there for anybody to parse. 
um, wow. somehow. So you know, it was pretty. It was a pretty surreal kind of kind of notion. Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know if that's been done before. It doesn't matter. Her voice is beautiful, and um, you know, maybe Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac certainly had to have done something along that, along those lines. Um, but yeah, that was that's how it, that's how it worked out. I can't let this pass. You've been kicked in the head twice by a horse. Yes. Yes. Sounds terrifying. Um, yeah. Um, they'd have me. Uh, they would. My parents would pluck us from idyllic Santa Barbara, where I grew up, um, back to where they grew up on farms in northern Iowa. Just about every summer. In fact, I was meant to. I'll never forgive them for this, even though they're dead. And of course, I will forgive them for this. But I was meant to be the starting pitcher for the, the little league all-star game but i had to miss it because we'd have to drive back to iowa um where most of my cousins who were all girls you know who were teenage girls and a little younger all you know drove they had they drove tractors and cars and things so, so once i got there it was kind of a wild and exciting um uh sort of deal and um so what was what's the question again? I'm sorry, I lost my train. I'm just getting kind of kicked in the head by a horse. Oh yeah. Uh, so my grandfather, you know, would you know, I'd ride on the tractor with him, and while I was there, of course, you're, you're not going to sit around just just drinking root beer floats all all day, waiting waiting for you know uh, uh, your pork chops and you know applesauce dinner. So they put they'd put me to work, and you know, I'd have to shuck corn and. Um, feed the pigs and you know um i milked a cow you know like you think of me of course you do as such a sophisticated <laughs> erudite gent but you know i've i've, I've been if i played a farmhand there's been a couple times when my uncle was you know shoeing a horse and i got too close and i got kicked in the head and i'm not once but twice so I think I think when I was a professor, I'm not a professor anymore. I retired. I got out of that ridiculous game. Um, I would tell the students every once in a while when I was anecdoting down the lane that I'd been kicked in the head, and you could see the faces on their faces would light up, going like, "Oh, that's why he's such a wacky, <laughs> well, whack, wacky, whackmeister of a professor." But yeah, and then I'd I'd been on a horse as a kid once, and then as a college student when I was a camp counselor in Yosemite. And they just know that you're afraid of them. So, you know, they shuck you off, shuck corn, shucked off of a horse. So, yeah, it's been, you know, it's just, that's not, that's a phobia. I don't really, I don't like heights. I don't like horses. Yeah. No the thanks. H's. You want to scare me to death, go ahead and, and, and bring Mr. Ed over and, you know, then I'll jump out of my skin. Yeah. Horses freak me out. Wow. <laughs> So I know you're a big Beatles fan. Huge. All right. I've been talking to my sets a lot. There's that whole story that, you know, about someone asking John Lennon if Ringo Starr was the best drummer in the world. And he replied, he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. I mean, I think it's been proven that that was made up by a comedian in like the early 80s. But I mean, for me, it, <laughs> that begs the question, you know, who did John think was the best drummer in the Beatles? So like. If we were to have a seance, like I would like to ask John that. Is there anything you would like to ask John Lennon if we were to like, you know, parlay this into seance time? I would ask him just like Jesus because they're the same person to me some days. I would ask him when he was coming back, you know, and um, if he could do it all over again, if he 
would do it all over again. No, I don't. I, au contraire, I don't think that was made up by some um, Peter Sellers-ish comedian, even though it seems like it might have been. I think I think Lennon certainly in his you know most uh, cheeky sort of stage. You know, you watch those. You watch those interviews in San Francisco or Los Angeles um, when they had the press eating out of the palms of their hands and, you know, the whole bit of McCartney saying, you know, about Norwegian wood, we were just trying to write songs about lesbians and um, prostitutes or whatever. I mean, they were they were awfully sharp. So I, I, I think he, I think he did say that. And I and I think, I, of course, he's being facetious. You know, Paul isn't Paul is no Ringo. That's for sure. So. Um, there you have it. And your other favorite, Nabokov. I didn't want to let this go without talking about him. What's your favorite Nabokov novel? It's Pale Fire. That's one I've read 15 or 16 times. It's not everybody expects you to say Lolita, um, but Pale Fire is far and away. Once again, you know, here we are with the whole motif of trickery, of um, the, the idea of unreliability of the narrator and an inside joke inside another joke inside another joke, like a Russian doll. Um, so it's got to be pale fire, really, and then, um, and then, and then Lolita, and then some of the early early ones. But yeah, I've read them all except for I've made it only halfway through Ada a couple times and The Gift a couple times. I just don't seem to be able to stick wow, yeah. stick those. The Gift is my favorite, but Pale Fire, I think, is one of the great works of art of the 20th century. I mean, it's so much more than just a novel. There's so much going on there. And I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. He can't, he doesn't want to, he's read everything else, but he won't read this because he doesn't like poetry. What would you say to this man? Uh, I would say that he's daft and that um, he needs to get over that and, um, uh, as uh, as well as just so he could maybe kind of trick himself into thinking that he wasn't reading poetry because there's times where I read the Pale Fire poem and I think that it's absolute doggerel, uh, you know, faux 18th century, you know, heroic couplets um, mixed with just the most absurd similes and that John Shade is just a, a complete dolt in the way that so many great poets are kind of stupid people. Like, you know, I can't uh, imagine as for as musical as Tennyson was, I imagine that he was quite dull company. You know, there's uh, some something really kind of kind of stupid about certain artists like Led Zeppelin. You know, they're great artists, but they're probably kind of you know, despite the cleverness, kind of dumb dumbs. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I would say I would say don't read it like it's poetry. Read it like it's a um, it's did something of a uh, of, of an elaborate riddle or a joke approach it approach it like that and um you know that it's that it, it's it's poetry and it's not at the same time just in the same way that i've always maintained that lyrics aren't poetry and that of course you know if i could when they when i'm king i will revoke the nobel in literature from good old mr bob zimmerman you know he won't he won't have that anymore i'll take it away from much as i love bob dylan what he writes isn't poetry it's lyrics yeah, but I'm, I'm I don't I don't imagine the pen people are going to endorse that themselves. So there you go. Bringing the time machine back, like if you could go back to any literary event, what would it be? Oh gosh, I don't know. <laughs> These questions are uh, really absurd, as a, you know, as as you well know, sir. Um, I don't know. Well, I mean, literary... you don't want to be caught with your pants down. Or maybe that's a bad way of putting it. But when the time machine arrives and you can go anywhere, you don't have to be spending time thinking. 
Well, I don't know. I mean, what's a literary event, you know, for the, um, what I'd like to just uh, look over Joyce's shoulder as he wrote Ulysses and, you know, where was it in, in Switzerland or in uh, Northern Italy? I don't, gosh, I, I can't like what, what events are, are you talking about? You want me, you want me to hang with the groundlings of, you know, for the debut of King Lear? Um, I, I guess you know, I hadn't really thought like, it through, but uh, it seems like that would be kind of smelly. I don't, I don't want to go. You know, just it seems like going back in time would be a malodorous prospect. So yeah, like Thomas Pynchon apparently was a student of Nabokov's when he taught at Cornell. That yes. would be kind of interesting to see both of them. Sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah, sure. I'd like to. I'd like to. I'd like to see Pynchon right now. I mean, I'd like to just you know. I like I'd like to see Bigfoot as well. So, just the king of the hide and seek game of hide and all time hide and seek. I saw a T shirt the other day that said had a picture of Bigfoot saying "hide and seek champion of all time." So, that's good old Tom. I don't know. You're, you're a big pension guy. Love pension. Yeah. yeah. I can't. I can't. I've tried. I can't stick it. Read, you know, I I taught the uh, lot forty nine. Um, I think that was you know utterly unwarranted. I had no idea what I was talking about because I had no idea what I'd read. And I've tried Gravity's Rainbow, and I've tried Veen, I've tried Vineland, and I'm, you know, I feel like I've, you know, I I I sort of tried from having seen the Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, um, film of what what's what was the film Inherent of Vice. Inherent Vice. You know, I own them all. They're right up there on the top shelf where I can't reach them. It's a metaphor for my intellectual inability to, I mean, what am I going to do? Try Gravity's Rainbow again. There's just certain books you're not meant to, just excuse me, you're not meant to get through. I guess so. I don't see how a time machine would help. No, not at all. So I know you're always working on, you're always on to the next project. Like you seem to be recording, like as soon as you finish an album, you've already halfway done with the next one. What, what's, what's next for you in the Black Watch? I don't know. Um, I have a few new songs. Um, and the, the one that's coming out in the fall, From Things Some That, will be the 19th record. Um, it's possible that we'll do... I, 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 there are a couple of new songs that I'd like to do as a single. I don't really have any plans right now. We've been so in such a flurry of activity that it's nice to take a, a little bit of a breather. Um, but yeah, I, I'm always writing. I can't seem to keep my hands off the guitar. And um, so uh, just I can't say I can't say right now. I'm mostly concentrating on basking in the glow of the nice reviews that we've gotten for Brilliant Failures. It's just really been um, terribly flattering, and I've been overly modest. And it's time for that to stop. I think I'm going to just be just a completely boastful, bumptious, you know, indie rock, you know, dork that's just, you know, le- le- basking in that, you know, in, in the glow of those reviews. Because, yeah, it's been very flattering to see people, um, you know, really take to this new record more than um, more than maybe any of the others in some time now. So um, that's, that's just really nice. So can't I just skate for a while, but yeah, I'll probably do another, another record one of these days, but you know, it'll be a reaction against the one we just finished, which has a a disco, an indie rock disco song uh, on it. So, you know, to pay homage to another influence, which is new order, another band I love to death. Um, 
we'll we'll see. I don't know. Um, I keep on threatening to try to retire, um, but can't seem to manage it. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, it depends on you know. One of the advantages of living in Los Angeles is that you become friends with producers and engineers who um, just you know you have access to studios um, and for very small budgets. You know you can you can make a quantity of music. Um, you know, culling favors for people and working with my friends. So it's, you know, an excuse to get together with some people I really love, like Rob Campanella or Scott Campbell or Andy Creighton, and guys who, the three guys who produced uh, Brilliant Failures with me. And I've somehow bamboozled them onto playing a lot of the instruments on these things to supplement the band. So it's just getting sort of easier and easier for me to come in and do my rhythm guitar bit and sing a little bit and then just say, Hey, you guys go ahead and take it away. So I mean, it's just gotten easier and easier to make, to, to, to make records as, as we've gone on. Um, a lot of times people, you know, uh, sort of, um, um, complain that, that it's more difficult as you go on, but I found it easier. I mean, maybe too easy. I don't know. Maybe I need another kick in the head from a horse. <laughs> It's possible. I mean, it's, you know, it's a really a mad thing. I did, I did another interview um, the other day where somebody said, you know, if in 1987, when you started the Black Watch, could you have seen that you would 30 years later, you'd have, you know, 18 records to your credit? And I said, yeah, you know, that seems like that would be, yeah, that seems logical. Uh, that's quite more than possible that, yeah, I could, uh, I reckon that, you know, I think you're right about that. I will. Excellent. So it's so which is so silly. It's just it's really quite absurd, and people resent it as well. I think on some levels, I know my some of my peers do, but you know, f them if they can't take a joke, you know, an inside joke or whatever. I mean, it just you have to do what you want to do, and apparently, I'm a songwriter. So there you go. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Well, that's all my questions. Do you have anything else you want to add? I don't. Uh, I I I I think I've. Um, smothered it <laughs> not just covered it but smothered it yeah you have, you know there there goes there goes any illusion of being some mysterious character or you know having any 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 sort of you know uh cloak of, of, of mystique and yeah, i'm a pretty much an open book that you know fortunately now a few more people are wanting to read my tagline before had been i'm an open book that no one wants to read <laughs> but now it seems as though you know people are checking it out from the indie rock library to again overextend a metaphor to the point where it snaps a hamstring well thank you so much for coming there on the show yeah. John. all right thank you very much too all right yeah, it was a pleasure so yeah, I hope you dug that. Man, I always get excited discovering a band that's been around for a while, like having a whole back catalog of new stuff to listen to. And in the case of the Black Watch, there's 19 albums. We didn't actually get a chance to talk about it, but my favorite song of John's is actually a little number called Terrific, which which is so appropriate because it's a terrific tune, you know? Though, though I don't think the song itself is about itself being terrific. I don't think it's that meta or self-involved, but but you should definitely give it a listen. It's off their 1991 album, Flowering. 
And in Southpaw news, there's plenty of stuff over at youngsouthpaw.com for you to check out. And that live show I did for Joyzine is up at joyzine.org. That was fun, man. Got into U2 being a B-52's cover band as as well as doing the uh, Nietzsche time-traveling Wu-Tang fan and John Lennon seance stories. And also recently I did an Instagram live with comedian Manny Sierra talking about Kiss, which was rad, man. We got into like, what if Prince had been in Kiss for an album in the 80s? Like what his makeup would have been? Woo! That's on Instagram live and over on YouTube if you just search for Talking Kiss with Manny Sierra and Young Southpaw. So thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. And if you're digging these episodes, please rate the podcast on, you know, the sites and share the links. And Well, thanks, y'all. And I'm going to play you out on one of my favorites from the new Black Watch album, a song called Twisted Think. Let's go.